Hi, I'm Pastor Kyle Carlson, and you're listening to a message from Imprint Community Church in Northeast Baltimore. I pray that this message will encourage you in your walk with Jesus Christ. Visit us online at imprintcommunity.org and worship with us in person on Sundays at 10 a.m. at Seven Oaks Elementary School. Enjoy the message. We will be today in 1 Samuel chapter 16, chapter 16, about halfway into the book of 1 Samuel. The story being told, as you know, in the book of Samuel is the transition of the people of Israel from a period of judges to a period of kings. And indeed, the, the rest of Old Testament history will, uh, will center around the kingship uh, and the, the dynamics there uh, in the nation of Israel. And in fact, it will split uh, eventually into two nations, Israel and Judah. And so the rest of the, the history of Israel in the Old Testament follows these lines. But that wasn't the case until Samuel. So God raises up Samuel to anoint kings, right? And so the, this is the, the transition happening here. I want to remind you of uh, how this book opened because it will help us in seeing what God is doing as we get to chapter 16. The book of Samuel opens with God rejecting a failed house of leaders, the house of Eli, who had been a judge and priest and trained his sons in the priesthood, but his sons were wicked and abused their, their role, and God rejected Eli and his household. And so we saw early in the book of Samuel the, the rejection and failure of his house and God's provision for his people of new godly leadership. And the, that provision was made through God answering the desperate prayer of a barren woman named Hannah. So chapter 1 begins with Hannah. She's actually the first character that we spend any time with in the book of 1 Samuel. And uh, again, very very unlikely, very lowly, not a remarkable in, in worldly terms kind of a person. But this is where God zooms in. And begins to tell the story of uh, Samuel and the, this transition to kingship. So God answered the prayer of Hannah, who was desperate for a son. And he provided, he opened her womb and provided her with a son named Samuel. And she devoted him to the Lord. And then in chapter 2, Hannah gives this prayer that, un, that, that really sets the tone and the themes that continue to unfold throughout the book of 1 Samuel. So just a few uh, tidbits from her prayer in chapter 2. She spoke to her enemies and said, Speak no more so very proudly. She said, The Lord brings low and the Lord exalts. She said, Not by might shall a man prevail. And so the themes of the humbling of the proud and the exalting of the lowly, right, the bringing down of the strong and the raising up of the weak is right there throughout Hannah's prayer at the beginning of this book. And we see it unfolding time and time again in this story. And where we are in 1 Samuel chapter 16, we see that theme once again, and maybe its most poignant expression. In today's passage, these themes ring clear and true. In God's rejection of Saul and his choice of a new king, 
We are reminded of God's raising up of the lowly, indeed his choosing of the lowly, to bring glory to his name and grace to his people. And so we find ourselves in chapter 16, just after Saul has been rejected as king. Saul has demonstrated on more than one occasion an unwillingness to submit himself to the will and word of God. And so God has now had sent Samuel to Saul to say, you have rejected the word of Yahweh, and now Yahweh has rejected you from being king. And so chapter 16 opens like this. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Pause right there. So the first thing we see in this chapter is that Samuel has not gotten over Saul's rejection as king. Samuel is grieving over Saul's rejection. Now, Samuel, of course, played a personal role, a very personal role in the establishing of Saul's kingship, as he was the one that got sent to anoint Saul as the first king. And indeed, that had never happened in the history of Israel. And so he anointed Saul as king and had been the voice of God in the ear of Saul, the king, as it were, uh, throughout his time as king. And so the role of Saul, the job of Saul, was listen to God's word from the prophet and then do what he says. And of course, we see Saul, Saul being unwilling to do that time and time again. But nevertheless, Saul is grieved. Saul is mourning over Saul's, uh, Samuel, um, excuse, excuse me, is grieving over the rejection of Saul as king. And when chapter 16 begins, God sort of gently rebukes him. He comes to Samuel and says, how long will you go on grieving over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? I think what we see happening in Samuel's mind and heart here is God's plans didn't go the way he wanted, right? He saw, okay, we've anointed Saul as king, so here we go. Things are looking good. There was promise in the start of Saul's kingship, and then it all went bad, right? Things went south. And so it, it's as though God's plans and purposes for his people kind of took some twists and turns that Samuel didn't expect. And so he's grieving the way that things had turned out. And perhaps coming close to the line uh, of, of losing sight of God's good, gracious purposes for his people. And so God comes to him and says, how long will you go on grieving? I think as a reminder I have not forgotten. I've not forgotten my people. I've not abandoned my promises, right? So it's like lift your face, put your eyes back on me, trust me. And I think we all have times uh, and seasons like that, or at least temptations toward that in our lives, where God's plans don't unfold the way we expect or the way we hope, the way we want them to. So when we get disappointing news or uh, when an opportunity we're hoping for doesn't pan out or somebody that we had trusted and put our faith in in some way lets us down. There are these moments of, of disappointment. And it's as though God would lift 
our eyes back to him and say, I have not forgotten. I have not forgotten my promises. I have not forgotten you. I am with you. I am good. I know what I'm doing, right? Just look to me and trust me. And so God does that to Samuel here, lifts his face and says, I'm not done yet. And so then he tells him, I have provided for myself a king among the sons of Jesse. Uh, that's a very interesting language. I have provided for myself a king. And so an- another, Jesse is not a, a guy of high stature. Jesse is not some powerful, you know, executive or politician that everybody is like. And Bethlehem is a little town, right? Not a big fancy place, not a big center of commerce. Bethlehem is a small town. Jesse is a lowly guy and he has eight sons. And God says, I have seen for myself, I have provided for myself among the sons of Jesse, a king. All right. So God is on the move. God isn't satisfied to just go, well, that leadership under Saul failed. Let's just, you know, let's just throw in the towel and let the whole thing collapse. He doesn't give up. God has a plan. God has a new uh, king for himself. And so, and he's got work for Samuel to do. Get up, fill your horn with oil, go to Bethlehem. For I have chosen for myself, provided for myself a king. Let's keep reading. Look at verse 2. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice. And I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel's comment here about Saul's... uh, the threat of Saul trying to kill him gives us maybe a glimpse into Saul's state of mind at this point. Remember, Saul, Saul had plenty of excuses for himself uh, for why he had spared uh, the, the sheep and goats and bulls of, of Amalek and spared the king, Agag, and all that. Well, we were just you know, going to sacrifice them to God and, and all this. I did obey for the most part. And so God rejected Saul, and he went home. And so Saul is in this frame of mind, apparently, that if he were to learn that Samuel was going uh, to Bethlehem to anoint a new king, that he would seek him out to kill him. So there is uh, jealousy and rage likely in the mix for Saul. And as the story of 1 Samuel unfolds, we will see plenty of that um, from, from Saul. And so Samuel is not far off to be concerned. How can I go openly to anoint a new king? Because Saul's going to know about it and he's going to kill me. And so God, this is very interesting, God gives him a strategy. He doesn't just say, don't worry about it, I'll take care of you. He says, okay, take a heifer and go to Bethlehem and tell Jesse you're going to make a sacrifice and invite him to the sacrifice with you, right? So you've got a cover of sorts, which is kind of interesting. Uh, So God says, so that's untrue. He is going to take a heifer. He is going to do a sacrifice. And he is inviting Jesse to the sacrifice. He's not quite telling the whole story. So in other words, if Saul were to say, what are you doing? Why are you going to, to Bethlehem? Well, that's what, well, I'm going to Bethlehem to sacrifice, right? Because God told me to do that. So not, not, so it's not a lie. It's the truth. It's just not quite all of the truth. So it seems that at times uh, God is, is willing uh, for, in, in certain situations, to allow for the, the kind of selective telling of, 
of truth, as it were, which is kind of interesting. We can talk about that more later. So he gives him this plan. All right, take a heifer and say you're going to go sacrifice and invite Jesse uh, to the sacrifice with you. And so, verse 4, Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? And perhaps they have heard about Samuel's treatment of Agag at the end of chapter 15. Perhaps they're aware that, they're almost certainly aware by this time that Saul has been removed from the kingship and that, and that showdown, that conversation between Samuel and Saul. So they probably know that Samuel and Saul are not on good terms. They might also have the idea that if Samuel comes to our city and we welcome him and greet him, now maybe we're going to be inviting the displeasure of Saul. And we know enough about that guy to know we don't want to be on his bad side, right? So there, there could be all of these kind of things going on in their minds, but they're afraid. When Samuel comes, they're like, what, what, are, you, what are you doing here? What, what do you have in mind? Is this, do you come in peace? And so Samuel says, peaceably, verse 5, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. That consecration probably would have included the ritual kind of cleansings and things that they would have to do in order to present themselves before God. And so they all come together, Jesse and his sons, to this sacrifice. And look at verse 6. When they came, they being Jesse and the sons that he brings with him, when they came, he, Samuel, looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. So Eliab, apparently an impressive guy, physically imposing, impressive at least to the appearance. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And here we have the key verses, the key insight, not only into this chapter, but perhaps into the entire book of Samuel. This is the lesson that we're beginning to learn about the ways of God as we see the leadership of Israel changing, the, the, the failed leaderships being rejected and falling and new leaders emerging and God raising them up. God sees differently. God looks differently than we do. Man looks on the outward appearance. We look for strength. We look for something impressive. We look for results. We look for big numbers, right? There, there are ways that, that people have of assigning value, worth to somebody or to something. But God doesn't look at things like that. It says man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And even Samuel, the prophet of God, who we know has a good relationship with God, a living relationship of faith with God, misjudges the ways of Yahweh here, and sees Eliab, this tall, handsome, strong boy, and says, surely this is the guy that God has in mind to be king, which reminds us a little bit of Saul, doesn't it? Saul was head and shoulders taller than everybody else, 
There was no one in his, all Israel that was as handsome as he. That's the way that we were introduced to Saul back in chapter 9. And Samuel seemed to have been impressed by that even back then. So Samuel hasn't quite learned this lesson. And so God is going to correct him here. Don't assume that because he's physically impressive that that's who I have in mind. Because I look differently. I look on the heart. Liam Gallagher says of, the, says of God, he sees better than we do. His perception is more trustworthy than ours. And it takes some humility to admit that. We look, we see, we make conclusions, and we trust that the conclusions we've drawn based on what we've seen are reliable. But the truth is, our conclusions are often off base because we've looked at it all wrong. We've looked for the wrong thing, valued the wrong thing, and so perhaps we ought to have the humility to recognize, I might be wrong about this. This thing that I thought was so important or this person that I thought was the right guy for this job or whatever the, the, the situation is, we need to not trust our own conclusions. Enough with, you know, the way I see it, maybe we should be more concerned with the way God sees it. Let's ask him, how do you see this? Let's apply kingdom values. Let's apply a, a godly way of thought to our lives and situations. If you remember the kind of motto of this period of Judges, it, it happened a few times in the book of Judges, and the, and the book of Judges ended with this phrase, is that in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Remember, that, that's, that's how this period of time was described. The people of God did what was right in their own eyes. And how did it go? Not well. It was a mess. There was child sacrifice and all manner of wickedness throughout the period of Judges. And in a lot of ways, it hasn't gotten much better uh, in these early periods of, of the early period of kingship here under Saul. So people doing what's right in their own eyes leads to all kind of wickedness and ungodliness. Isn't it good news that God doesn't see the way that people do? When we do what's right in our own eyes, we go astray in all kinds of ways. Not just dishonoring, displeasing to God, but destructive to ourselves and to those around us. We get, we get things totally upside down. It doesn't take a, a lot of effort to look around the, the, just the culture around us and the, the talking points in the news and the way that people think about life and humanity and, and values to go, the way that we see things is utterly backwards. And it's totally upside down. And so maybe it's time that we stop trusting our own vision and start looking and asking, God, how do you see this? His judgment is always right and true and good. We should trust him. I think that's what it comes down to. I think the baseline exhortation from the notion that God sees better than we do is trust him. Take him at his word. He knows what he's doing, even if circumstances make it seem that he's forgotten you or that he's abandoned you or that he's punishing you or whatever it is. You know, look around the culture and the world around you and go, oh no, God is abandoned, right? And we panic, what's happening to our world? 
Like, how, what does God see? How, what does God know? What are his judgments? Let's trust him. How might we be inclined to get things backward like this? Just think about that. Just reflect on this. What are some things, some ways that I might be inclined to value the wrong things? That like Samuel did, put the, the physical, you know, outward appearance of things as the, the indicator of truth. Instead of looking on the heart as God does. We can certainly do that individually. Looking for impressiveness, success, um, power. We can even do that corporately as, as a church. There, there's all manner of temptations for churches to look at the outward appearance and not look on the heart, right? Churches can very easily start to value what looks like outward success. How many people are attending? How many baptisms have we registered this year? How much money has come into our bank account, right? How, stuff you can measure, ways that you can look at numbers and go, oh, that's grown, that's bigger, that's better. And we have this very Americanized, if I can say that, way of thinking about even church life, which is bigger is always better. Bigger is better. As long as you've got a lot of people, God must be blessing it. I can't tell you how many people I've heard say that about ministries and churches that, that are utterly unfaithful to God's word, not proclaiming the gospel. But they have lots of people. And so even sincere, Bible-loving Christians might look at something like that and go, you know, I mean, yeah, I don't love what they're saying and what they're preaching, but like, I mean, look at all the people. God appears to be blessing it, so who am I to... Right? The, the only reason that we could look at that and say God appears to be blessing it is because we assume that more equals good, that bigger equals better, that the more impressive, flashy, you know, size of things must mean God's blessing. Surely God's anointed is before him, right? And God says, that's not how I see things. I'm not interested in impressiveness. I'm not interested in what appears to be successful in the eyes of the world. I'm interested in the heart. Trust his judgment. Look to him for his discernment and judgment and wisdom. And don't trust, let's not trust our own conclusions, our own vision, our own perspective. So seven sons of Jesse pass Samuel by, and here's how it goes. Look in verse 8. Then Jesse called Abinadab, this is the second son, and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. This had to have been a long, awkward, kind of increasingly strange situation. Um, we're not sure if at this point in the story, Jesse knows what Samuel is doing. I think by the end of the chapter, it's pretty clear that they're in on what this anointing is going to be about. But nevertheless, Samuel comes and says, basically, bring your sons to me. And so one by one, they walk before him and he goes, uh, the Lord has not chosen you. Next. The Lord has not chosen you. Next. The Lord has not chosen you. Seven times. The Lord, 
you know. So seven sons are. God didn't choose any of these guys. So Jesse and these sons are probably going, what is this about? I, I, don't, I don't understand what just happened. And Samuel asks the only logical question. Do you have another son? Right? God told me I've chosen for myself a king among the sons of Jesse. I've come to Jesse and said, give me all your sons. And here they are. And God hadn't chosen these. So is there another one that I don't know about? And look at verse 11. Jesse answered, There remains yet the youngest. Well, behold, he is keeping the sheep. So, yes, I do have another son, but it didn't seem worth it to bring him here for this purpose. He's perhaps so, I mean, he's the youngest of this, these eight sons. So you wouldn't think if God's got some big important job for him to do that he's going to pick the youngest. And he's taking care of the sheep. I mean, it's a hassle to get somebody else to wash the sheep while he comes over here. And there's no, just, just leave him. Just leave him with the sheep. So seven sons get rejected. And Samuel goes, do you have another one? Jesse's like, well, yeah, but he's with the sheep. What, what do you want me to do? You want me to go get him? So Samuel says, we're not having a sacrifice until you get him here, right? God's chosen as a king for himself among the sons of Jesse. I need to see every son of Jesse because the other seven ain't it and so he sent him verse 12 he sent and brought him in now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome so we do we get this little picture of david being a good-looking guy ruddy means like reddish it's used of esau when he was born and i think it's often associated with age with with youth right so he's he's young he's a handsome guy but he's small he's the youngest of these kids and the lord said arise anoint him for this is he really out of all of these sons of jesse we got eliab this tall impressive guy and then six others none of those nope god chose the shepherd god chose the one that the family thought probably not even worth bothering to bring him here that's the one God's like, no, get him, bring him here. Yeah, anoint him. He's the one that you need to anoint as king. We don't even know his name yet. If you notice, we know who he is because we know the story. But the, the text has not even told us, hasn't even mentioned his name yet. Look at verse 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah, Ramah being where Samuel lives. So the one that God has provided for himself to be king is not the most likely candidate, right? Lord humbles the proud and exalts the lowly. You've got impressive Eliab in front of him. I don't want that one. Bring me the shepherd. Bring me the youngest. There's another son that would be born in Bethlehem some 1,000 years later about whom the prophet Isaiah would say, uh, would foresee a similar lack of impressiveness. And he would say that he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. And so in David, 
this shepherd from Bethlehem, this unimpressive youngest son of a small, you know, an, un, an unimportant family in a small town, we see a picture of one who would come. We see a picture of the Lord Jesus himself who would be born in the city of David, a descendant of David, David's greater son, the scriptures call him. And notice that as soon as he's anointed to be the king, the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David. Where have we seen that phrase? We saw that said of Saul. When Samuel anointed Saul, the spirit of God rushed upon them. And he was empowered by God to fulfill his role, to do his job, to do his ministry, right? So the spirit of God rushed upon him. But it didn't just rush upon him in an instant to, to complete one particular thing. Look at the phrase in the middle of verse 13. The spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. That's new. The spirit of God had not rushed upon somebody in that way up to this point. We had a couple of instances of that happening in the book of Judges. Like Samson, for example, the Spirit of God rushed upon him and he attacked the Philistines and killed a bunch of guys. We saw that with Saul. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him and he attacked uh, the Ammonites back in chapter 11. But those are always moments. They're always task-based. Here we see the Spirit of the Lord rushes upon David from that day forward. So there is a, there's a, a greater longevity here to God's empowering of David and his ministry. And so Samuel goes up and, uh, and heads home. The Lord doesn't see the way that we see. The Lord doesn't value the same things that we value. We would pick the tall guy, the strong guy, the handsome guy. God picks the shepherd, the youngest, the one that the family didn't even think was worth the time to bring him in. God looks on the heart. The rest of this chapter is a... a, a a very ironic and interesting twist uh, on, uh, in the relationship here between David and Saul, who's still currently the king. So David's been anointed, but he hasn't like, actually been installed to serve as king. So Saul is still king. And this is going to get very interesting. Look at verse 14. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. So immediately contrasted with David, the, the, the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him from that day forward. The very next verse says, and the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. So we see here God's trans, transferring of his blessing and his empowerment from Saul, who's been rejected, to David, who's newly anointed. And now it says a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. We can't spend too much time uh, trying to figure out exactly what that means. Um, but nevertheless, Saul is bothered. He's, he's, uh, he's twisted. He's, un he's uncomfortable. He's unsettled. And, and this in some way is from the Lord. I think it could be conviction. It could be, uh, it, it could be a sense of God trying to even warn and, and get Samuel, I mean Saul to return. But... He doesn't respond that way. Nevertheless, Saul is tormented. And so Saul's servant said to him, Behold, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre 
And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. So Saul's servants have this strategy. You just need some good music, right? You ever just need music therapy? I'm having a really bad day. I just need to crank up, you know, Led Zeppelin or whatever it is you want to listen to. Make yourself feel better. I doubt David played Led Zeppelin tunes, but uh, I'm not sure I would have made Saul feel much better, honestly. Um, They go, you just need some good music. So let us find a musician that can come into your court. And when you're feeling bad, when you're being tormented by the spirit from the Lord, we'll have this guy play music and, and you'll feel better. And so Saul goes, sure, provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. And one of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Huh, that's an interesting coincidence. So Saul's servant has in mind a son of Jesse from Bethlehem who is a skilled uh, instrumentalist who might be able to play this music for him. Therefore, verse 19, Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David, his son, to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved David greatly. And he became his armor bearer, which is a very, there's a close bond between a a king or a warrior and his armor bearer. There would have to be. They'd be going into battle together. He'd be helping him, assisting him, a personal assistant. And Saul sent to Jesse saying, let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. Saul clearly at this point has no idea that David has been anointed the new king. Nevertheless, in God's providence, in God's strange wisdom, David, the newly anointed king, has found himself in the court of Saul, soothing him with his music therapy. And Saul loves him. Saul says, he's found favor with me, let him stay here. Move away from your home and live here in the palace with me and take care of me in these ways. Play this music for me. Be my armor bearer, right? And so Saul, uh, David finds favor with Saul. And very interestingly, in verse 17, the language there where he says, where Saul said to his servants, provide for me a man who can play well. It's the very same language, the very same phrase that God used to Samuel when he sent him to David, when he said, I have provided for myself a king from Jesse's house. And so David is at once the choice of God and the choice of Saul. God has provided for himself David, and Saul has now provided for himself this same David. Very different tasks, and obviously without Saul's awareness that David has been anointed to be his replacement. You imagine things might have looked a little different if Saul knew that. And indeed, some of the drama that will unfold in the coming chapters hinges around Saul coming into that awareness, that this one who is in my court, who is my armor bearer, who is my music therapist, he's the guy that God anointed 
to replace me. And it's going to get very, very ugly. We're not there yet. And so chapter 16 ends in this very ironic and strange situation where David, the newly anointed king of Israel, is actually serving in the court of the current king, Saul, who's been rejected by God. And the stage is set for all manner of intrigue in uh, the chapters to come. The very next chapter... Uh, which we won't look at actually until July. The very next chapter is the famous, maybe the most famous story in the Old Testament of David fighting against this Philistine champion named Goliath. So we'll have a chance to see how that unfolds and what we can learn from that when we return to 1 Samuel. I want to finish uh, today's uh, time in the Word by taking you to 1 Corinthians. As I've reflected on God's... uh, unlikely choosing of God's seeing differently and operating from a different set of values and standards, if you will, ways that we don't see. I was reminded of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where the Apostle Paul is speaking to the Christians in Corinth, and he says this, beginning in verse verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 1, he says, consider your calling brothers. That is God calling them to himself, to salvation. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Even your faith in Christ is from him. Who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. God operates from a different set of values and standards than we do. God sees better than we do. And God often chooses the lowly, the weak, what appears to worldly wisdom to be foolish. And indeed, Paul had just said in 1 Corinthians 1 that the very gospel that we preach, by which we are saved, appears like utter foolishness to the world around. To the Jews, the notion of a Messiah who was crucified is complete nonsense. Messiahs conquer. Messiahs win. Messiahs don't get killed on crosses. And to the Greeks who need to see what they regard as as wisdom and truth and philosophy and the deep things of the world, they regard these people worshiping a dead guy. Well, he's not dead anymore. But it's nonsense. It's, It's utter foolishness. And so both Jews and Gentiles, according to Paul, are totally just flabbergasted at the gospel. Why would anybody believe this? Why would anybody want to follow this Jewish crucified so-called Messiah. It doesn't make any sense. But God chose for the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe it. 
The gospel is foolishness to the world because they look with the wrong eyes. They don't see the way God sees. And so it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. God still sees better than we do. Praise God that we are in his family by faith in the gospel. Foolishness to the world, but to us, the very power of God. Let's pray together.